Earlier this month, football went from a sporting drama to a real-world one when Danish player Christian Eriksen collapsed mid-game with what turned out to be a cardiac arrest. Thankfully, he survived because of the prompt help of the medical team at the stadium and was able to leave hospital a few days later. Though thankfully rare, something similar also happened to my colleague Emma Brennan in another dramatic location. Not a football pitch this time, but instead the operating table. It's quite a story, and she told it to me, Dominic Laurie, head of comms at TalkTalk, Talk, on this latest episode of Walking the Walk. Emma, I, I thought I had a few careers under my belt, but you've got more than two football teams put together by the sounds of things. Tell us what <laughs> you've done in your life. Fascinating. A lot of people only do one thing, you do about 50. Well, I've definitely never said no to an opportunity in my life. I've always taken the excitement of the opportunity and then sort of thought, well, work out the logistics and the details of it once I'm there. Say yes and ask the hard questions afterwards, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good idea. Um, so tell, give, give us the list of all the different careers you've had. Opera singer. Uh, I have done some film and TV acting work, um, voiceovers, radio. I've been in sales. I've been in um, productivity uh, task force specialist for the sales. Um, I've done events and sponsorship, uh, event marketing, event sales, and uh, now customer marketing. Oh, and I did a stint in internal comms. I was with external comms when I first started, and yeah, now uh, in customer marketing. So you are you are a living embodiment of the notion of transferable skills, by the sounds of things. Absolutely, I am definitely the embodiment of. You don't necessarily need a marketing degree to work in marketing. There are a whole host of skills, which you might think are completely random from, I don't know, music, but actually the nature of those skills and the um, time and effort and sort of the, the way your brain works to achieve those skills and, and execute those skills actually are probably a better transferable skill or an equally valid transferable skill to whatever the subject matter is, or as the Australians say, it's same meat, different gravy. I've just got different gravy, but I can apply it to the same meat. <laughs> Although I would hope that if you're a, an opera singer, you do have some training, or some training is needed. I imagine that is a good idea to, to go to music school. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, that's highly, uh, highly, yeah. highly um, competitive, highly uh, skilled and, and excessive yeah. hours. Or Everyone else at uni was sort of doing, you know, three hours of contact time a week or something. You know, we were absolutely plugged that you had languages, you had movement, you had acting, you had workshop, you had dance. Then you had your actual singing and your coaching sessions and your other sing lessons. And uh, yeah, honestly, it was um, it was hardcore contact. Um, so I did my bachelor's of music here at the Birmingham Conservatoire and I did a year at Guildhall as well. And then I went out to Australia and did my master's of opera at the Sydney Conservatoire in the opera studio there. And meanwhile, you were working in Carphone Warehouse sometimes right when it started back in 1999. I, did, you well, sing, yeah. did you sing to the customers sometimes as training? <laughs> Very occasionally, yes. I can actually <laughs> imagine that. Actually, actually, yes. Well, it was one way to get, you know, um, my sales up. No, it's one way to keep the Saturday queues busy. Uh, yes, I was a plucky 19-year-old uh, student. And um, I, I think I had a friend who worked there. And so they said, oh, come, you know, come join us as well. And so I joined Carphone in October 1999. And it didn't go public until the following Oh, spring summertime of 2000 when it um, floated on the stock market. And so I stayed there until 2007, sort of July time, when, which is when I moved abroad. So nearly eight years 
at carving. Wow. One thing I'd like to talk to you about, it's very topical given Ericsson, the Danish footballer's very, very unfortunate sudden cardiac arrest seemingly on the pitch in Copenhagen a few weeks ago, is that you have a story to tell that's not dissimilar. Yeah, um, that was quite shocking footage to watch and um, slightly timing-wise, I don't know, appropriate and that's not the right word, but um, I, um, I'm currently in some, or I've been diagnosed with PTSD of, of, of a trauma that was indeed my own sudden cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, uh, four years ago now is when it all happened. I got very sick in the May slightly randomly I sort of fell very sick with a whole host of things that they didn't quite know what was wrong with my body and I was sort of taken into um, hospital and they were sort of throwing things around like oh you might have a blood clot on the lung or you might have an anti-autoimmune disease like lupus or Raynaud's or something and then things were just sort of happening and they would discharge me because I responded to some drugs and sort of looked slightly better but still without a diagnosis and only to sort of relapse at home and my body just start to fall apart and then would be readmitted back to hostel then with them going, oh, we uh, yes, we recognise you and oh, we know you and oh, God, yeah, you're in a terrible, horrific state. And what happened or what sort of came, this was a three-month process as well. I was literally in and out of the hostel. It was horrific. And I was actually on mat leave at the time. I'd not long had my little baby girl, who's not so little anymore. And I was just in and out of hostel and it was horrific. And what they realised was that I had a seven and a half centimetre abscess in my chest that had been there for however long because it was literally rock hard like a tennis ball. And it was containing um, Staphylococcal aureus, which is sort of the deadliest variant, if you will, of staph, which has a mortality rate of about 25%. So that was slowly trying to kill me off, they realised. Um, and they, once they sort of finally got to it and realised that they, they couldn't sort of get rid of it and it was affecting my body, it was all in my lymph system, in my gland system, everything in my bloodstream. And that's why I was being so horrifically affected and, and being admitted to hospital for weeks at a time. And then they sort of went, enough's enough, really. The only way we can get rid of this is to operate so um, I thought, brilliant, this will be the end to this three-month horrific saga of me being in and out of hospital and I can, you know, finally get better and get back to my baby and enjoy my mat leave and get back to normal life. And I went into cardiac arrest, full-on V-fib, ventricular fibrillation on the table, which I think slightly freaked out the um, the medical team. They um, It can often happen, obviously, you've got all the monitors on you while you're in an operating theatre. And sometimes one of the monitors can come loose or liquid or blood or something can get under it. So it becomes unsticky and, and it, the machine beeps to sort of say there's a there's a bit missing. And they realised incredibly quickly that it wasn't because one of the pads had come off. It was because I'd actually gone into arrest. I had no pulse. While they were operating on you for yeah, something so else? Yeah, my chest was open. Goodness gracious. Because they, Goodness when they gracious. opened me up, the, the abscess was all the way up to the chest wall. So I had this massive open wound in my chest. And I went into arrest. And was having a heart attack. Well, no, no. So it's not a heart attack. Oh, no, very different. Um, heart attack's the plumbing, uh, if you will. <laughs> and cardiac arrest is the electrics. So literally, a fuse had blown. I had no blood pumping. My heart wasn't pumping any blood. I'd gone grey. I had no crotted pulse. I was dead on the table. So what happened then? CPR, very, very quickly. And it's interesting, really, I suppose sort of as part of my treatment and trying to come to terms with all of it post-op, um, uh, post all this sort of incident and, and everything that came 
as a consequence of this issue. I, I did meet up. I asked if I could meet up with the anaesthetist team, the anaesthetics team, and the two anaesthetists who um, who were doing the operation with the surgeon. Just, I suppose, to sort of ask and understand. I'm quite curious in that way. I like to sort of have the information so I can process it. And they said, you know, it's very much not like the films. There's no sudden like, come on, come back. We got you. Don't lose you. Know, there's none of that nonsense going on. It's completely silent. So the surgeon literally just sort of stepped away. They just let the anaesthetists um, get on with it. And my sister-in-law is actually a consultant anaesthetist. So she sort of, I think she knew all too well um, what had happened. Um, and the consultant did something which I think only medicals uh, medical staff are sort of meant to do and, and it doesn't have a very good success rate but he gave me a precordial thump which is almost like sort of trying to manually create a, a shock just as a very immediate thing to do to try and help start and the registrar then went immediately into the CPR um, because that's what you have to do you know time is of the essence every minute the chances of surviving for the person are decreased by 10%. So, you know, within not many minutes at all, you can, you know, potentially lose the person. And then they still have to prepare everything to do the defibrillator and the shock. So they've got to put the pads on, the machine's got to sort of warm up, the machine's got to assess the rhythm that it can sense. But this is on an open chest rather than a normal chest. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. Yes. So they had to sort of position it slightly quirkly around this big gaping open hole. And then I suppose sort of much like Ericsson, CPR and, and one shock and I was back. Um, but with them, because they've got to work out what on earth happened and they they had no, you know, on paper, I was not someone who should have any heart issue or anything should be going wrong. You know, this was never a factor. This was never even a, an outside random risk or chance that this might happen. So obviously there's quite a lot of shocking room, but they, they just, apparently they're very silent. They literally just sort of, everyone's focused on what they're doing. And then they keep you under for an extra time and they sort of put a hold hold of tests and monitors on you. Um, they sort of check bloods. I had an arterial line put in my arm. So that when I was then taken to the the recovery room where you then sort of come out of your anaesthetic and you're monitored, it was a really weird sensation because I've had a few operations in my life and I've sort of woken up in recoveries um, for, for small minor things and it's been fine. But I knew that I had someone permanently beside me and I could sort of sense that there was no one around, but I was still very hazy, eyes were still closed. And I was trying to speak, I think, but they couldn't, I wasn't very articulate. They couldn't understand what I was saying. And so they left Of course, you were, you were waking up and not realising at all what had happened to you because you'd been under when this had happened. Completely. And I thought my chest hurts so much, you know, and I thought I knew they were operating on my chest, but were they literally standing on it or sitting, you know, what were they doing on my chest? And my arm hurt and I couldn't understand why, but obviously because they put this arterial line, so it is a line of two wires that literally goes into your artery and up through your arm. Again, it's sort of a, a, something they do with heart patients to monitor and check, and it's a, an added measure. And then I remember the surgeon coming into this recovery room and stood at the, the foot of my bed, and he was quite a sort of whiz kid in London, sort of, you know, well-renowned surgeon, well-regarded surgeon. And he was only in his 40s. He is only in his 40s. And I just remember him stood at the foot of the bed, and I've still got the image in my head, white as a ghost, and telling me that, I had a cardiac arrest on the table. And I, I know what one is. I sort of understand one. Again, we've got medics in the family. I'm sort of conscious of what it is and what it means. But because I was still in such a dozy state, I just said, okay, 
And I think he sort of realised, okay, she's not quite awake yet. She's not quite ready. We'll um, we'll give it a bit longer. We'll mm. come back and then so a little bit longer by this. But, but I have to ask, did they did they do the other operation that you were scheduled to do? Well, yes. So, did they did they finish that as well? Because that was pretty important as well, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it it was, and I suppose well, luckily, luckily, unluckily, I don't know how you'd put it. Um, but the when the arrest happened, it was at the very end of the procedure. So luckily they sort so of had done, done the, the the sort of the bit I went in for. Uh, yes. Right. Um, but then I had the complication. So the, the consultant anaesthetist then came and sat by me and explained a bit more what had happened, what was then going to happen. So they took me up to the ICU, which again is not like any film or television. And it's really not a place that you want to be. And it was quite horrific because I'm looking around at some incredible, you know, this is where the sickest, absolute sickest, most high risk patients are. And I'm suddenly in there, one of them with them, which is quite traumatic in itself, really sort of realizing how, and I think it hit me, I think about two in the morning or something. I thought I was falling to sleep and I thought I was just breathing so shallowly that I was just slipping away. And that really freaked me out. But in ICU, you've got a a nurse to, a you know, I had my own nurse who's there constantly with me. Uh, a guy called Fred who was lovely and he just he was just there with me the whole time and sort of kept me through it and sort of I think realized how how scared you know it's also something I think the realization I'd woken up enough to the realization to hit me of of what a cardiac arrest is you know it, it is unless you are resuscitated it is death sorry to be morbid <laughs> and you were a new mum yes so I listened that, that, that's just a layer of I mean that's just another layer of stress and trauma on on top of something that's already very hard. Yeah, so my little one was only four and a half months when that happened. And obviously my husband had sort of rushed to the hospital. My parents who were looking after Bubba, because I'd already been in a hospital for a week by this stage. Again, I'd sort of been admitted and they're like, you're, you're in a horrific state. This is where the sudden decisions were made. So I'd already been in hospital for a week and they were allowed to bring the little one into the ICU, but literally just sort of two minutes and in so I could see her, give her a kiss and out. I mean, she was... I suppose the reassuring thing is that she was four and a half months and will have absolutely zero knowledge or memory of any of this. You know, she wouldn't have known what was going on at the time. But um, for me to see her, I think was very, very important. And, you know, it's not the nicest place. Hostels aren't the best place for babies anyway. And she'd been in to visit me at a variety of hospitals over three months. So I'm sure she didn't enjoy it. But um, yeah, they were allowed to bring her into ICU literally just for a couple of minutes. So when you saw this... um event on this football pitch in the Euros you must have it must have brought back a lot of emotion and when you'd read about it it did because it is just so horrific a thing because because it is it's literally a fuse a fuse just goes you you can't predict it you can't plan it you don't know when it might go and as a consequence of the so what happened following the arrest was and I was then moved to a specialist cardiac hospital who wanted to monitor me. And I was in for another three weeks undergoing extensive tests, literally every cardiac test under the sun to understand sort of why this has happened and what has happened and what was if there was something wrong with me and what was happening. And it turns out that they've diagnosed me with a condition called CPVT, which is actually one of the SADS um, conditions, which people might know slightly more familiarly as, as cot death. And I have it as as adult, sudden adult death syndrome. And there's about three different arrhythmias which sort of fall under that umbrella. Yeah, one of my childhood friends um, passed away on the eve of his wedding um, with um, SADS. So I'm I'm personally very familiar with it and I know uh, just how horrible it can be. 
and how unexpected and how random it is. Um, so you, you, you then try to recover mentally and physically. Yes, it, it, and it's it's still four years on now, sort of three and a half four years on now. It's still an ongoing process. The, the sepsis and the septicemia had absolutely riddled my body. You know, again, at points they thought I had abscesses in my spine, which is why they couldn't understand why my body was collapsing. But I've got nerve damage in my spine and my shoulders from where it was all in my system. And I've got so much damage on my left-hand side, particularly because that was the side where the abscess was. Um, and they also implanted a defibrillator into me. So I've got a, a subcutaneous one, which means it's under the skin and, and the side. So it's under my armpit, my left armpit. And for younger people, I think they're trying to give these defibrillators more because there's less infection risk. So a traditional ICD will go under the collarbone and it's probably matchbox size and it has wires that go directly into the heart. So if there's any infection that gets in, it's obviously much more dangerous um, and it's harder to remove or replace or damage, uh, repair and whatnot. So I've got a subcutaneous one, but the, the downside is that it's an awful lot bigger and it sort of has a wire that goes under along my ribs and then up the middle at my sternum. And it has to be bigger because it's not directly in the heart, it's to the sides and it delivers a more powerful shock should a shock be required. So I've got something not far off the size of an iPhone permanently under my armpits which I can feel and I knock all the time and I've got something not much thinner than a biro sort of stuck in the middle of my chest all the time so yes and it's and it's never needed to be it's obviously never needed to be used it's you haven't you haven't had a repeat touch wood no but I'm on uh, so part of the condition is that I actually have quite a, a very low resting heart rate and that is somewhat of an issue that we're trying to work out a best plan of action for so it's more that the beta blockers they've given me are, are quite I'm on quite a rare one but it's quite a, a strong one because it doesn't block the receptors beta receptors just in the heart it also blocks the beta receptors in the lungs so I I do get fatigued I do get tired short of breath um but the medicine is more sort of designed to kick in at the upper end so cpvt is very much a stress related so either adrenaline through extreme sport or extreme emotion which you can imagine probably three months of sepsis is is probably the the peak stress emotion that someone's going to go through so that's interesting i mean you know fabrice muamba the footballer who this happened to um about 10 years ago had to stop playing football christian erickson is working out i imagine what he has to do so you, you, I imagine, has, you, you have to try and avoid extremes of exertion, extremes of emotion if you can. Is that, is, is that part of your action plan? Essentially, yes. I mean, I'm certainly not a pro athlete, but I was very sporty, enjoyed my sport, and it was a real shock to the brain and, and mental sort of uphill battle to when I was first told we won't be able to exercise again, that almost floored me. But it, here we do have, or a lot of authorities do do a cardiac rehab process, which can be both the sort of psychological side, but also the physical side. And it's, it's usually more for the heart attack patients who have had stents and bypasses and whatnot, but I was put onto it as well. And actually that was quite useful because it it more just helped me reassess how I exercise and put in better places. So I'm still sort of often very physically fatigued but I, I still can exercise I still can go out and do a little bit what, of what can I want you to do? do I still go for runs okay so like slower maybe or you know just keep within a safe yeah safe pace. My, my pace is nowhere where it used to be which is frustrating <laughs> as well because you kind of think well I used to be fit and healthy and be able to run 
10k just, just under an hour and you can't and, push it no and you just you can't swimming still but mainly sort of with the little one not competitive swimming like I used to do and and some gym classes I'm trying to get back into so because heart health is and body health is is important and I was yeah, very because there's that risk as well isn't there I mean you, you you don't want to drop it so that you're putting your you know your 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 general physical health at risk there, there must be a balance I would have thought absolutely and I was really lucky in in the extensive heart test they did that the arrest didn't cause any physical damage to my heart so my actual heart is is still perfectly um as it should be and there's no I don't suffer from any heart disease I don't have any blocked arteries or or any risk of blood clots um, or anything like that, which is great. Fabrice Mwamba, um, he got diagnosed with, I think it was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is essentially a, a swelling or a thickness in the heart muscle. So his is actually sort of a heart muscle condition. Ericsson, as I said, I'm sure will be going through the absolute gamut of tests um, that I did. But it's interesting sort of reading through the comments and the posts on lots of these Facebook support groups and, and the cardiac arrest survivor and SADS survivor support groups that the nature of how he went down, how quickly he went down, how quickly he came back. Some people are sort of saying it, oh, that, well, that does actually fit in very much to the, the SADS pattern. So it'd be interesting to see what the final diagnosis is actually when it comes out. And he's now been uh, fitted with a with an ICD as well. But unfortunately, I think certainly in Italy, it's against their regulations. He That sort of international football, premier football in Italy, I think is over. But equally, I think I don't think any team or any national team will want to take the insurance risk. Certainly not this stage until they know what's definitely happened. So I really feel for him in the same way that I did, that your whole life has changed and you've got to mentally get your head around and shift to a new life in that sense. And so I think the the weeks and months and years ahead will be quite tough for him. And I really feel for that. And where are you now? You, I mean, you always come across as a, as a, as a cheerful, optimistic person. <laughs> you've, you've done many careers in your life. I'm sure you've got many careers left in the bag. You just try not to let this get you down to, not not to be trite but you push forward I, I do and I think I've got a four-year-old so life doesn't stop and she doesn't really understand at this stage either sometimes I feel like I've got a mask on completely and I do and and that's actually why I'm in therapy so I had psychotherapy as part of the rehab and then probably about a year or so later after everything had sort of calmed down as such and I'm in this new life of every few months different cardiology checks and whatnot and device checks PTSD hit me like an absolute tsunami it completely floored me and I didn't know what was happening but I reached out back to the the psychologist and psychotherapist at the hospital to say I'm struggling I, I don't know what's happening and and they sort of said it's it is PTSD and and we sort of got through that wave and things changed and I made the move um when Talk Talk moved from London up to Salford, I sort of took that move as well and just thought it'd be a great life opportunity and a, a good adventure. And that was really positive life move. But just at the moment, again, I think just with everything with COVID and lockdown and everyone's mood is down and there's you know, stresses and pressures and you see things like that, I've a second wave of PTSD has hit. But I, I, I was aware of it or I understood what was happening this time. So again, I sort of reached out for help and they have diagnosed me with PTSD and we're sort of embarking on a on a CBT uh, cognitive behavioral sort of therapy process and I'll get some specialist trauma therapy as part of that because it doesn't go away it's in my head 24 7 it's it's just it's almost like a just on a constant loop it's like a little play video 
so it's always there. It might be slightly further back or it might really come to the fore, but I can't, it, it's never left my head. But if you know your enemy, it helps enormously, doesn't it? If you know what you're dealing with. It it does. And I think, you know, I'm, I've never been afraid to say, actually, this is, I don't know what's happening to me and I, I need some help rather than trying to sort of battle and struggle through it alone. You know, I've got a great bunch of colleagues at work and amazing manager who's he's absolutely fantastic and supportive and that's all you can ask for really you know I I sort of work's almost a nice distraction as busy as it gets (laughs) I don't think I don't think anyone's ever said that before have they (laughs) um but but it you know it is and, and you do just have to sort of try and amble through it as best you can and and do it in a way that works for you really I suppose we're all different aren't we That's all for today. If you like the podcast, please subscribe in your podcast app. And if you have time, give us a review. If you have a suggestion or question, get in touch on Twitter at TalkTalkGroup. You can follow us there or also on LinkedIn. Thanks a lot for listening.